you're listening to Film Graves. I'm Emmett. I'm Sam. We're from the band Phil Graves, and we're going to talk about cinema, new and old. Today, we're going to graze on Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, and then we're going to look at the Kerrigan season at the BFI and Notorious. All right, we're going to start by talking about Tarantino's new film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, uh, his ninth film. Yes. I feel like Tarantino's probably uh, one of the main filmmakers that I grew up with, as like an auteur, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, more so than any of the the classics, even. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. This guy, like, whose films we grew up watching, our generation. I'm sure most people our age would say the same thing, and yeah. people older and younger, just making iconic films. For sure. Um, Regardless of, well, whatever. I was thinking, like, oh, I really wanted to miss this one out because Tarantino is one of the few directors whose work I've, like, seen in full. Yeah. And I wish he wasn't there with, like, you know, Tarkovsky and Bresson or something. <laughs> you know? Like, well, maybe you can uh, miss out Star Trek. <laughs> I'll, miss, I'll give Star Trek a miss, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah um, for sure. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, then. Shall I do the plot here? What's it all yeah. about, Russell? Okay. <laughs> okay. So, it is set in Hollywood in 1969? Nice. Yeah, um, 1969. Yeah. And... Three main characters. Yep. Okay, we got Rick Dalton, Hollywood heavy, ex-leading man, played by Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. We got Cliff Booth, his stuntman, played by Brad Pitt. And we got Sharon Tate, the only real person in this trio, mm-hmm. whose biography is, you know, I suppose what governs our expectations of this film. We know that Sharon Tate, as a Roman Polanski's wife, mm. actress, living in Hollywood, gets killed by the Manson family. In, in 1969. In 1969. Certainly more famous for that than for The Wrecking Crew or even like Valley of the Dolls or other films she's been in. Yeah. Fearless Vampire Killers or whatever. For sure. In terms of her place in um, Hollywood mm-hmm. mythology, it's the fact that she w- was murdered by the Manson family in the height of sort of hippie mania. Mm, I don't yeah. know. The, the sort of moral... Pa- and it's, then setting off the moral panic associated with hippies or exacerbating right. it really badly i feel like this and the the murder of someone at a rolling stones concert in altamont a few months after that had traditionally seen as like the two sort of big cultural moments and it was at the same time as like the vietnam war was starting and stuff like that they're traditionally mm. seen as like when things like turned sour when the 60s turned sour after so much like liberation for these middle class white people like by and large anyway Anyway. definitely i mean another um i guess facet of the 60s that is tapping into is um the emergence of the spaghetti western Mm -hmm. which plays a quite prevalent role in the film um as rick um leonardo dicaprio's character struggling to find work is basically recommended to uh, go to Italy and, you know, star in these spaghetti westerns, which he takes a pretty dim view of. It's a, you know, it's it's all about, film culture is like a main thing that it's looking at. We spend a lot of time on sets. It's his first film that's really, like, explicitly about cinema, even though all his films are, like, very, you know... Loaded with homage yeah, to... Yeah, 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 for sure. ...all manner of genres. As long as they're low rent. Yeah. 
But I guess this one, um, yeah, it just takes like a different perspective on the same subject matter. Yeah. It's still a historical film like his last few films have all been. Yeah, in a different way. Um, well, no, in, sorry. It's set in the same sorry. place. That I mean, it's, it's the exact same as his previous historical films. Yeah. But, I mean, defining them as historical films is slightly problematic considering the general project which yeah. seems to be involved in, in these films. For sure. Um, historical fiction. Yeah. In the same way that, it's not, it's not even historical fiction, it's more like, and it's not counterfactual history, which is mm. like, well, I guess it, I guess it's sort else. of, it's, it is counterfactual history, which says what if, mm-hmm. right, that's the question that proposes, but his what if is the denouement of, of these films. That's right? just what I was about to say, um, yeah, I, it's not the premise. In Inglorious Bastards, the what if is, you know... It's, it's towards a what if. <laughs> so, you know, Hitler that's gets about, shot in the face. That's it's about fun. killing Hitler. Yeah. Um, Django, similarly, is about a slave revolt. And this is about, well, I don't know. I, we, won't, we don't need to spoil it. Maybe we can talk about the ending at the end or something. Yeah, good idea. Um, but, I mean, it's, I guess the point is, these are very finely tuned invocations of the past maybe is the mm-hmm. way of thinking about it in terms of attention to detail the sets the cars um i feel like he's the, allowed himself to like brandish like the specificity a lot more in this film maybe it's because there's less actual like cultural detritus that you can associate with like the old west or even with yeah. the nazis and world war Two. um this film is loaded with like adverts and posters for films mm. that were coming out in 69 all of these things like i feel like every frame has to have some sort of prop or like a bit of period detail or whatever. yeah recognizable period detail not just random stuff sorry go on definitely i i mean what I, in um his films previously the way he's used music mm. um has been i guess governed by a stylistic or aesthetic decision um to invoke the call or, mm-hmm. you know, any sort of melodramatic function that you can describe to music, to soundtrack music. Whereas in this, I feel like it's all, it fits within that, it's all coming from the radio. Yeah, I mean, I we were discussing this in, re- in relation to La Femme Deuce before, mm. how a lot of the music in that, especially in relation to other Bresson films, is mm. more rooted in, um, I guess, lived experience and detail mm. in an attempt to recreate a moment so a lot of the tunes in this, even though they're contemporary, are coming from the radio rather than just like being delivered to us yeah. out of nothing. I like how the soundtrack is largely uh, like radio to like easy listening, mm. these kind of things. It's not like Credence or even like Nina Simone or any of the music that's lasted more from these times that has like some sort of... Yeah, cultural purchase. Yeah, this is uh, just AM radio like bait. I didn't really detect much of a score no, like, that's the point. I, yeah. like, I guess that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. um, he's letting the environment speak for itself more than in m- maybe in some of his other films. I was waiting for the anachronistic music choice. I guess it's more like Pulp Fiction in that regard because that's kind of the same with a lot of the music. It's like very figured around the radio and also a Jackie Brown Reservoir Dogs. Fact is, I feel like Kill Bill was when he started using like no, really no. distracting... Do you think? Yeah. I couldn't think of like a song in Kill Bill in uh, Pulp Fiction that isn't like 
coming out of a radio or like in the dance scene or like played off the speaker or like you know Uma Thurman puts on the record or like has, has one of the reservoir dogs got a boombox for little green bag yeah fair enough but that's and yeah. there are these other like no yeah. come on man there are there are definitely moments especially when he's got these like sort of Morricone style soundtracks that are, hang on uh, I feel like one of the things I associate with the films of 1969 is really bait music you know like using the trumpets on like cutting to brass you know punctuation notes and there was none of that in this film it wasn't edited like a 1960s film really i mean it's about that cultural um tension Mm. but it's very much so from the perspective of um those that feel embattled i guess as a result of this cultural change Mm. um you know i guess the characters are meant to be conservative americans basically even if they are more in sort of anti-hero mould, you know. Are we meant to... I mean, we were meant to sympathise... Leonardo, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, who's, you know, his career is ailing and he's gone from being a leading man to, like, being the heavy eye... being the villain that in these fucking TV pilots, mm-hmm. the upcoming hero actor is, is meant to defeat, right? He's... Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many shots of him crying... Uh, yeah. And you know it's when he well, he's, when he forgets his lines, right? No, there are other there. Are, I feel like there are multiple scenes where he's crying because he's frustrated about like his condition. There are also scenes where he's driving around, seeing hippies out of his window, and very much like Eric Cartman going, "You fucking hippie!" Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, they are the heroes of the film. Yeah, you have to you have like, to be on their side. You're with them for far too much time. Otherwise, yeah. you know. In terms of representing the Manson family. What do you think? What did you think of that? Um, I I liked the scene when he went to the Spawn Ranch, the Span Ranch, the Spawn <laughs> Ranch, because there was something like happening in the film, you know. But um, I guess I guess right. The whole we can talk about it later, but like for me, it was on my mind the whole time. Like, oh, when are the Mansons going to turn up? Like, Charles Manson's only in it for like 15 seconds or whatever, and it's like a guy who doesn't even really look like him. But that's neither here nor there or whatever. It is a guy that's been cast as him elsewhere, though. Professional Charles Manson impersonator. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, they're all very the... peripheral, aren't they? Throughout. But you feel but like. they're there. You feel yeah. their presence as some sort of like yeah. Easter esta- It's established as a. Yeah. a threat or something that exists at the very least that will then permeate the rest of the story yeah. somehow. But well, you know the whole film is about the Manson family because it's about yeah. Sharon Tate. As a, she's a main character in the film. Yeah. And you're waiting for the Manson murder to happen. Did you like um, Margot Robbie's Sharon Tate? Yeah, I did, actually. Yeah. I think she's a really good actor. But I feel like the, the complaints I have that a lot of people had when it came out in Cannes about her not having lines, that's been like argued back and forth so much and it's actually a very clever and good thing that she didn't have any lines in the film or whatever and I still have the problem that like no I feel like Quentin Tarantino especially like obviously he deliberately didn't give her any dialogue it's not like it was an accident all his characters like can't fucking shut up in any of his films yeah it was interesting how um in this film a lot of the stylistic hallmarks that we'd associate with Tarantino Mm. from uh, I guess mainly in terms of character exchange, you know, like really. Well, when they're stuck. talking about like the minutiae of like fucking B movies and stuff in this film, that's actually what they're supposed to be talking about, as opposed to <laughs> yeah, just definitely. being like random shit. That no, but I guess I'm talking about more like monologues and stuff. Yeah, Brad Pitt is also pretty non-verbal for quite a lot of the film, which I think is. Uh, I, re- I really appreciated the the more naturalistic approach 
in, in the script. Yeah, but instead of talking, it's just driving. It still felt drawn out, no matter how... Should have cast Ryan Gosling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, that's way more shit. That's, yeah, that's a terrible film. That's, yeah. I was saying to Francis, they should have had Jason Statham in the Brad Pitt role, though. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would have been great. That would have been fire, you know. Brad Pitt's excellent, though. Yeah, of course. Um, He's always excellent. Yeah. I don't enjoy Leo's style of acting that much. Tonally, I don't know. This film is introduced with like a scene with Leonardo DiCaprio and Al Pacino, the worst actor in the world. So like, the bar is set pretty low. It's also got Lena Dunham in it, you know. And yeah, she was in it. When? She's one of the Manson family. Michael Madsen has a very short cameo at the beginning. The Australian stunt woman. She's in all his films. Oh, we should talk about the scene maybe. Is this the one with Bruce Lee? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, Rick. Leonardo DiCaprio character has got a job being directed by Kurt Russell. Who also narrates the film? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, 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 yeah. Strange. <sighs> what? Yeah, that's something we should touch on a bit. Anyway, sorry. So Rick is sort of arguing for Cliff, uh, his stuntman and like friend, to work on the set and, um, you know, really has to fight his corner. It finally, Kurt Russell's character finally acquiesces and um, so they're all on the set. And uh, Bruce Lee. Is is also and, there? Well, Bruce Lee did train Sharon Tate how to do like kung fu or whatever for one of her film roles, so it is grounded in fact. Yeah. However, I guess um, the representation of him as was it his daughter is not pleased with um, how he's represented. Basically, he gets in a fight with Brad Pitt's character, and I mean, basically bested by him, and he's represented as. I guess pretty arrogant and yeah. aloof. It is ridiculous. This whole thing of you know like. Bruce Lee famously the greatest or whatever and then just this old man who's like you know, coming in and just like throws him across the... Yeah. I mean, it's a fun scene. It is. I think it's quite a fun scene. However, I mean, arguably disrespectful. I don't even think so. Like, like, he's Bruce... still represented as like a badass and, you know, we understand that he's someone that obviously worked really hard to get into the position that he was For in. For sure. And I don't think that's something that's necessarily undermined in the representation of him. I feel like Bruce Lee is used in this film like other other things, like one of these harbingers of like alternative forms of media emerging, like to replace like traditional like Hollywood cinema, right? And in the seventies, like oh, that's a really good point. Kung yeah. Fu films and these were like really hugely successful. Even though Bruce Lee only made like five films and then fell from an allergic reaction to a marijuana cigarette. What? Yeah. What? No. That's how he died. No. Yeah. He didn't get thrown into a car or anything like that. For True say. I, what, another thing to remember is Tarantino mm. clearly reveres Bruce Lee. Obviously. And what he represents and what he brought to cinema. And, you know, this homage is clear in Kill Bill and in other films of, of his as well. I don't think there's too much to read into that. In the same way he reveres Sergio Corbucci, who's like the expense of like a huge joke in this film. Yeah, the, the, end, but, the main character is basically sold out. And he's like, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to go and make these fucking cool feature films. And then you watch Kill Bill 2 and it's literally a, that style, like incredibly slow. I guess the thing about the film is that it does portray this sort of like transitional phase in like American mass culture or whatever. And it's all about like TV acting versus like Hollywood acting and like even the violence and stuff in the film, like arriving at the end, you could say like how like, like real gore and like real violence that was like emerging and just starting to come into cinema at the time and kind of change the form but so in terms of what he's actually doing by subverting the fates of these characters i mean what 
I don't know. It's just maybe maybe the point is it's a different sort of violence, but it's still violence and it's still gratuitous violence. And maybe the fact that the Manson family incident, as mm. it's come down to us through posterity, is subverted doesn't mean a turn away from violence. It just means like a different sort of a different sort of violence is still going to be like prevalent and permeate for culture sure. Deeply. For sure, and yeah, cultural like sadism or whatever. You know, like yeah. the sequence is really. Maybe one of the most like horrific sequences I've seen in a Tarantino film. I think. Yeah, I mean it's it's pretty extendo and it's pretty harrowing, and it's also, played for laughs like by and large. It's like yeah. incredibly comedic. You know, you got like the dog biting them in the crotch and stuff yeah. like that, and like the flamethrower. I think is like implicitly humorous. You know. Uh well, yeah. I mean, only because it's such a farcical weapon of destruction. Yeah, of course. Um, I yeah, the end reminiscent of a <laughs> green room. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Green yeah, Room, okay, I, yeah. I, I want to take a moment actually That's at this a great point film. To, to recommend Green Room. Anyone who hasn't seen it, it's really good. It's about a bunch of punks who uh, are on tour and they end up in a sort of American backwater town um, playing at like a Nazi roadhouse and then it sort of becomes like a siege film. Yeah, it's really also, good. Also, that film also features uh, a dog as arguably like the fourth or fifth main character. Yeah, I mean, we run through the full fucking gamut of emotions in relation to uh, Brandy, Brad, Brad Pitt's character's dog. Massive dog. Yeah. Not like Albus sitting here, although I've got love for you, Albus. I've got all dogs. It's fictional or real. <laughs> Anything else on this? Uh, loads, yeah. yeah. Um, why did we have to spend so much time just driving? I thought that was really. I fundamentally thought the film was fucking boring. Like, I didn't enjoy watching it. I enjoyed the cinephilia and, like, the fake film sequences a lot, but, like. I mean, that's not much of it, really, is it? That's, these it's not are, as these much are as, interruptions. It's not as much as the driving, listening to, like, Peter, Paul, and Mary or something like mm. that, you know? I feel like I don't like Quentin Tarantino's films, but then some like recently I feel like I loved Inglorious Bastards, and I also read like The Hateful Eight, which I guess is considered. Oh, did you like that? Considered to be like a sort of low one of the low points of his career. I like it, but I I thought you didn't like it for some reason. No, I liked it. Yeah, I thought it was a way better film than this. Certainly, I think this one is definitely swollen, and also structurally, it's. I don't know, it just doesn't flow that nicely. Yeah, there aren't really acts. Mm, I guess there are, but it sort of trundles along it's a little a, bit, I, doesn't I, it, at points. I mean, the, even the way we've talked about the film today, like, struggle to, like, pin it down, but not because it's, like, out one or something, not like it's, like, Ulysses, you know? It's a film about, like, a stuntman and an actor hanging out over two days. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very simple film. I mean, if he couldn't make Death Proof in 90 minutes, then, like... He obviously couldn't tell this story in 90 minutes. Maybe the fact that it is set over like a limited, um, a limited period of time justifies um, the presentation. Mm. I feel like, like Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs and Jackie Brown are all set over like, you know, Aristotelian like 24 hours <laughs> in the same place or whatever, realistically. Okay. There was no time shifting in this film, which I was just assuming there was going to be. There's no anachronistic soundtracks, you know. A lot of the techniques, as you were saying earlier, that he, that I feel like you go into a Tarantino film expecting were conspicuous by their absence. And he was trying to tell like a way more straightforward film. And there were a lot of like things that were like gestured at. It reminded me of the Adam McKay film Vice from this year where there was just a lot of like distracting things that were used one time and just like... Yeah, in the first, or well, the second, the first scene is uh, on set sort of snippet for um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character's um, 
successful TV show, which is now in the past, Bounty Law. The second scene then is when he meets Al Pacino, um, <sighs> this Italian film producer, basically, um, or American-Italian film producer. And there's a really strange cutaway, where, which seems to be setting a model, because it comes so early in the film, for mm. this sort of... Um, like uh, family guy style. Like. Yeah, just these little cutaways. Um, yeah, like the one with Brad Pitt's wife on the boat as well. It's just like... Yeah, I feel like that serves a slightly different function. But again, uh, these these are far and few and far, but <laughs> there aren't many of them. Yeah, and they I mean, seem arbitrary and they don't service the the film really in any way. Extremely, like... Um, even one of the more annoying, like, I don't really like Kill Bill at all, but, like, that film is, like, rigorously structured, right? You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, and I feel like that's what he's, one of the things he's really famous for, and one of the things that he really brought to American indie cinema is, like, you know, it's a Goddard influence or whatever, but fucking with the time structures and stuff. But I feel like this film was very lazily made. I think it was quite lovingly made, but just potentially slightly misguided. It was swollen. Definitely. Um, it's two hours, 45 minutes long. Which, you know, that's pretty long. It's, it's, as far as telling, telling the story that he's telling goes, it's pretty long. What story? Um, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you didn't really like it. But um, you liked it? I, I did like it. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I was entertained by it. And I, I like what he's been doing in the last, I guess, 10 years since it's out. In Glorious Bastards was 2009. 2009. Yeah. yeah, last 10 years then. All the films that he's made since 2009 with Inglorious Bastards, I, I, I like what he's doing. I, like, I think it's interesting that he's obviously a guy that's always brought his historical influences or cultural influences into the present, and now he's projecting backwards and trying to achieve, I guess with this one, a synthesis which perhaps is less successful. Um, but I still think it's really interesting and I found it very entertaining. That's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Stay with us, don't go anywhere, because we're going to talk about the Cary Grant season at the BFI and his first collaboration with Alfred Hitchcock, Notorious. So for the month of August, the BFI is programming a Cary Grant retrospective. One of the biggest film stars ever, certainly one of the big, biggest British film stars, although curiously he's listed as a British-born American film star on He internet. moved there with, what, as a young actor? Yeah, like I mean, he was like a, actor. he was like, I don't know, obviously there can be a degree of falsifying or whatever, but I would encourage anyone to read Pauline Kael's 1975 article, The Man from Dream City, which looks at his whole career, and that's after he'd retired and had his whole body of work behind him. He was obviously incredibly famous. Um, but he was born in Bristol, Archibald Leach, um, and he was just like a street kid, then started doing like vaudeville as part of a performing troupe. As you say, moved to America real young. And I guess broke into like film in his 20s, just when at the sort of early talkies time and he was getting big roles from the start. This is what the BFI season is largely focusing on is his sort of comedies, his films with Howard Hawks. Um, so there's quite a few opportunities to see classics. His Girl Friday, Only Angels Have Wings, which is sick. They've shown that a lot at the BFI this year, actually. So shout out Jeff Andrew. But um they're showing it as part of this one. The Awful Truth, which is a Leon McCary film, but I think is probably the funniest film ever made. Philadelphia Story hasn't aged that well, but also Blonde Venus with Betty Davis. Yeah, they're largely focusing on that. And they've got a big restoration of Notorious by Alfred Hitchcock, which you went to see. Yeah, I hadn't seen it before. And seeing it on the big screen, uh, the BFI was probably uh, the best introduction to it. It was, yeah. uh, it was great. 
NFT one? Two. Okay. Two. Yeah. Not the Napoleon screen. The Napoleon screen has definitely <laughs> had that, that As it's called. Um, yeah. Uh, 1946. Mental year for... <laughs> Crazy year for film. A matter of life and death. Uh, it's a wonderful life. I can't believe they came out in the same year. My Darling Clementine, Best Years of Our Lives, Gilda. Uh, Disney classic, Song of the South. <laughs> Ivan the Terrible. Um, Les Enfants du Paradis. Paisan, Shine, Jewel in the Sun, all of that is kind of shit. The Killers, which is actually one of the sickest films I've seen. I guess it was a year when, you know, it was after, you know, there was a great lift on the West. Yeah, straight after World War II. And, yeah. I mean, that's what Notorious is about, really. Mm. Also, what Stranger is about, um, another 46 release. Um, we'll we'll maybe Wells get to that. third feature. Yeah, crazy. Strong film. It's on fucking Netflix. <laughs> yeah, okay. It's one of the two classic films on Netflix. Um, okay, N- Notorious. <laughs> yeah, written by Ben Hecht. A great, great screenwriter. Yeah. Written too many, and writer. Just wrote too many to even begin to mention. It's about... God, what? Okay. It's got a horrible <laughs> premise. Ingrid Bergman plays a German heiress. Yeah. Whose father has been tried for war crimes. Cary Grant's character is like a sort of fed, basically. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he sort of ropes her into... This mission in, where is it? Brazil? Re- in Rio. I thought it was in Argentina the whole time, but apparently it's in Brazil, yeah. I think it's in, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah you know, the classic post war yeah. setting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, the hideout. Um, yeah, to go, to go to Brazil and to um, basically honey trap this, uh, this German dude. It's really butters, yeah. Claude Rains is a fantastic, fantastic actor. He plays the evil suspected Nazi yeah and he's got a creepy mum who he lives with it's a really good performance yeah yeah well, I guess you do get really good acting in a lot of Hitchcock films but we didn't even mention that this film was directed by Alfred Hitchcock yeah oh, the, the famous not? famous English director Alfred Hitchcock yeah <laughs> yeah and so I mean it's basically a very febrile relationship drama between or love triangle really with a bit of espionage and entrapment thrown in um, between uh, Cary Grant's character, Ingrid Bergman's character, and what's his name? Claude Rains. Claude Rains. <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, it's great. I mean, it's proper it's, thrilling, isn't it? I feel. Yeah, I, I'm glad I saw it for the first time in cinema because it was like a cool experience. You yeah, know? it was like a, a real sort of sumptuous Hollywood film. For sure, one of his one of Hitchcock's early American films. Mm. Very good to see projected. I'm pretty jealous, to be honest. Yeah, it was great. Go see it. Oh, there must be lots. <laughs> <laughs> That's notorious. Um, yeah, it does. Well, it's got a lot of good sequences, isn't it? That party sequence at the start where Ingrid Bergman is playing drunk very, very convincingly. Oh, uh, yeah. You know, the first time I saw the scene was... Um, oh, who made it? It's a Steve Martin film. Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Yeah, right. Played. Is this one of the scenes um, in that? Yeah, so this film is... Pretty jokes. It basically... Um, you, you told me about this film before, but I've never seen it. Uh, yeah, I mean, you'd probably appreciate it more, having seen a lot more of the films uh-huh. that we'll use footage from. But it basically, um, I guess, it sort of interpolates Steve Martin into... Like when they put Leo in The Great Escape in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yes, exactly. Like A whole film of that? Yeah. 
with but, Hollywood but, noir. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So films from, um, yeah, loads of films. Uh, yeah. They're listed at the end uh, with Steve. They really quite ingeniously string a narrative together using, um, you know, getting Humphrey Bogart on the blower. Anyway, that it's cool. a great scene. It's a great cool. scene. Yeah. Um, and there's a great drunk driving scene after that. Um, Which is kind of mirrored in the other great Cary Grant Hitchcock collaboration, North by Northwest. Yeah, the drunk driving is fantastic. Anyway. <laughs> and then they're off to South America. Yeah. <laughs> I love all the sequences of them meeting in public and having like the, the secret conversation. Yeah, really not clandestine. <laughs> <laughs> Liaisons on road. So good. There's a couple of like all-timer shots in there, you know. The whole business with the key and okay. this party sequence. Is yeah, this is the real, the, probably the main, the key sequence. Mm. <laughs> mm. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, where she's, Claude Rains' character. Yeah. Claude she's Rains married <laughs> to Claude Rains' character, right? They get yeah. married. Yeah. And they have a party. Yeah. And there is proof that Claude Rains is a Nazi war criminal. Yeah, and he's like, "What is he? Do- what is he actually meant bottles. to be doing? Synthesizing something? Extracting uranium? This, is it a uranium situation? This I don't is know. Classic Hitchcock, right? There's here. something in this bottle. It's it, a MacGuffin. It literally is, doesn't it? fucking matter. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's a MacGuffin. Um, you know, and <laughs> the plot is purely inconsequential. But yeah, it's still germane to the you know. It's some cool shit. Progression of the story. It's an extendo scene of uh, height and tension and with loads of like really nice, you know, camera work, uh, including this shot from a balcony. The indoor crane, yeah. Yeah. Nice. Um, and, you know, it zooms a long way to Ingrid Bergman's hand to yeah. show the... This is crucial for Hitchcock films, I feel, where like, I just remember sequences and like images. I don't really... I mean, he, he said it numerous times. He doesn't care about the acting or, like, the storyline or the dialogue. He famously said you should be able to watch any of his films, like, Death, and be able to just, like, get the whole thing. Yeah, I mean... I, ha- I haven't re-seen Notorious. I didn't go to the cinema to see it, but my memory exists of it purely in, like, very, very memorable shots and images. And yeah, like, and it's, I guess... Definitely not lines of dialogue. But the context in which it's being presented as part of Cary Grant season mm. really puts not only his performance, but also the other performances in the spotlight. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's not being shown as a Hitchcock film, it's being shown as a Cary Grant vehicle. I did feel like a lot of the story was carried by the machinations it, of the it was characters. What? <laughs> the story was granted yeah. by, <laughs> um, by the performances, you know. Yeah. A lot of face acting. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Old school. Um, one thing I, I did want to talk about in relation to it and in relation to some other films mm-hmm. um, is it's both when it was made and, you know, what it's about and what it's saying. Its status as a about. post-war film. Absolutely. So it came out the year after the end of the Second World War. Mm. Nazis who had been really successful in the war but didn't necessarily die in the war mm. were well, I guess, known to be out. It's not even just about that um, dispersal of um, these figures, but the fact that 
after the Second World War, people needed to grapple mm. all sorts of people, whether um, European states, Jewish people, German people, people who we now perceive as having central roles in the, the conflict, whether based on experience or action or whatever, these people grappling with the legacy or memory of the war. And in this, and in um, the Orson Welles film, which came out in the same year, The Stranger, they're approaching this topic, str- you know, straight off the bat, basically. Well, The Stranger has concentration camp footage in the film and stuff like that. Does it? In well, that the, sequence um, when he's being shown the... When oh, he shows him the film, you remember that? Yeah, I do remember oh. that. What is it? The George... The George it might have been the George Stevens, yeah. Um, there's, again, on Netflix, there's a, um, the documentary Five Came Back. Who yeah. wrote the book? That it's, about? Um, it's on the oh. tip of my tongue. Mark Harris. George Maharis. <laughs> and his brilliant exploration of World War II's influence on some of the biggest directors in Hollywood, John Ford, George Stevens, etc. It's called Five Came Back. It's a book and it's also a Netflix series. Yep. Watch that. Um, but The Stranger and Notorious, both coming out really hot off the heels of the, you know, a conflict that, Straight off you know, really, really affected everyone yeah in the same way that like the third man or something was like a post-war film that was made or like mm. germany year zero or something like that it was really a contemporary film that was like about contemporary post-war life and the way they represent this um subject mm. in both of these films obviously uh the nazis or suspected war criminals get their comeuppance right in the stranger uh orson welles character is Ultimately, I mean, I think he dies. I think he like, falls from a bell tower or something. And in the talk, well, spoiler pretty, spo- alert. pretty spoiler heavy for all of these films, really. We did a good job with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, actually. Skirting. Skirt, skirt. Anyway, I'm going to do it. In Notorious, the Nazi slash... Is he even meant to be a Nazi? Is yeah. this meant to be like a German, like... Oh, it's one of those films where, like, they never use the word Nazi in the film. Anyway, the suspected war criminal gets his comeuppance. Oh, it's so good. He has to walk out in front of all his elite mates. Yeah. But, okay, in these films, the, you know, the the bad guy gets his comeuppance in the immediate aftermath of the war. This sense of people at the time were super hot on justice and reparations, obviously. But... A couple of weeks ago, we spoke about Majorca Muff, the short film by Jean-Marie Strobe and Daniel Hiei, which is about the exact same subject matter, but it was made over, just over 20 years later um, in the late 60s, and you know the way, the way the same subject matter is being represented, it's not... I don't know. They, had, they obviously had a different perspective on the subject matter by that point, being separated in time and seeing in life these people fucking getting away with this shit. Of course, I mean, there were many films, Marathon Man, you know, long into, even that Sean Penn film where he played the Robert Smith, you know, the Paolo Sorrentino film when it came out Mm. a few years ago called This This Must Be the Place where he's like a Nazi hunter, but he was also Robert Smith from The Cure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, please watch. Weird. I remember seeing the promo shit. Please watch. Paolo, love you. (laughs) (laughs) I want to watch Young Pope as well. The Young Um, Pope is fantastic. Sorry, this was all a very convoluted way of saying that it's interesting seeing how um, pe- filmmakers are reacting to the 
post-war life, I guess, or political experience, at like a 20-year interval between the immediate aftermath and then later seeing how... Because these like thriller films were like predicated on like solving individual cases, but the horror was not resolved. I mean, it's not very instructive to compare like Strohier with like Alfred Hitchcock, where politics is merely a theme and like like the films like Life Boat mm, is no, kind of the but, same. Okay, Ben Hecht though. Yeah, okay. It's yeah. not. You said that the story mm. is inessential to Hitchcock. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, but it wasn't to Ben Hecht. True. Who in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, wrote this response. Yeah, it's true. You're right. Perhaps it's true. But I feel like when I think of Notorious, even compared to The Stranger, I don't walk away from it thinking about, oh, yeah, that was a real political tract. Mm. It was just, like, part of the premise. For sure, but I can't help but imagine if I was watching it in 1946. I mean, yeah, post-war cinema. When it would have felt like a very visceral response to what everyone had lived through bringing down the nazi conspiracy through prostitution (laughs) it's really peak it is so peak i mean it literally is like a honey trap yeah but they did it yeah they did it it worked Uh, go see notorious is really sick if you haven't seen it that was the ending but again the plot (laughs) is merely immaterial yeah it's a a a light shroud of mist In one LSD dream, I imagine myself as a giant penis launching off from Earth like a spaceship. Cary Grant, 1958. Alright, a couple more films before we finish up. Yes, thanks for listening to another film, Grays. What have you seen recently, Sam? Uh, Alright, so on the weekend I had a little double bill of two films about early modern painters or painting. Peter Greenway's Night Watching which sees Martin Freeman play Rembrandt Van Rijn when he's uh, making his famous group portrait of uh, The Night's Watch. Came out quite recently, didn't it? Yeah, it's like 2011 or something like that. Actually, no, maybe it's... I don't know. I, don't know. I remember it coming out, but that was like before. a few years ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a really... Int- I thought it was a really interesting film. Um, Very fun premise. Yeah. You got me uh, the draftman's contract for my birthday a while ago. I just had a feeling you'd fuck with Greenaway, you know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that was thus far the only one I'd seen. And it's actually a really very similar story. That one's about a um, like an artisan who's commissioned by a sort of bourgeois elite to produce a work of art for them. Um, and that's what Nightwatch is about. It, well, like... Um, the other film I watched, it's about the sort of symbolic meaning of the painting as well and what the artist intended to convey. The other film was um, Lech Majewski's uh, The Mill and the Cross. Well, it's not, it's not really new, but... Mm-hmm. But another um, great Dutch artist. Yeah, Peter Bruegel, The Elder. Mm. Um, it's about him painting his, uh, what's it? the procession to Calvary, um, which is like a really, I mean, if you know, he's famous for, I guess, like the sort of group scenes, very different to the fucking Night's Watch, which is a very formal representation of a group of people. These are really, I guess... Peasants out in the wild or whatever. Yeah, like they're... 
way more anthropological and like, sort of cartoonish and mannered. Am I right in saying that Bruegel, like, Wave is like a secular painter, right? By and large, do you think that opened the door for 100 years down the line or whatever, Rembrandt to just painting, like, the world and the people around him or himself? Mm, as I opposed think they to... both worked, both in a secular framework, mm-hmm. um, traditional models, painting, like, historical scenes, uh, Bible stories, all the shit, or, you know, religiously inflected paintings, which... Um, well, I guess the thing about uh, the procession to Calvary is it sort of, since, like a lot of Bruegel's paintings, sort of synthesizes these two sensibilities mm-hmm. of secular and religious, mm-hmm. or the sort of staging like legendary uh, things in the real world or whatever, like you know. Or just, yeah, and showing that the sort of early modern tension between these two spheres mm-hmm. or intersection between them at least. But I mean, on a filmic level, it's the the mill and the cross. I don't know. I have to recommend it, like, super highly if you're interested in the shit. It's, I've never seen anything like it. It's a sort of tableau, vivant, shot against, like, a green screen or blue screen or whatever um, of actors, like, sort of recreating the poses. Mm. It's, it's really, really astonishing to watch with his background, like a matte painting in the background. Is it some Pomo shit? Or is it, like... <sighs> it sort of is because it looks weird. It looks like knowingly weird. Yeah. The really. You made it kind of sound like Dogville when you were describing it to me. Nah, that was um, night watching. <laughs> <laughs> night watching has um, sort of sets. Yeah. That are very vacuous. Right. Um, yeah. But with these like sort of antique props to uh, help give the sort of context of yeah. him operating. That in sounded more like sixteen forties Amsterdam. That sounded more like the cook, the thief. The wife and her lover, or whatever, as opposed yeah. to the draftsman's contract, I feel with just like, um, this elaborate set, but no, Go yeah, on. maybe in presentation, but um, thematic, I haven't seen the cook, but yeah. um, the story is very similar, but yeah, I thought it was really jokes double bill. Mm. Um, I mean, I haven't seen anything like the mill and the cross, really. It's it's an hour and a half of just living Bruegel. It's what more yeah. could you want from a yeah, film? It's really, really cool. Uh, what have you seen recently? I've seen I've been very outré and uh, esoteric with my choice. Now I've watched <laughs> I watched Nashville, <laughs> which is by Robert Altman. It's a fucking classic. You should watch it. Basically, my parents were on holiday, so I borrowed their Blu-ray. So I got to watch a couple of Blu-rays. This is the <laughs> this is the crux. This is, so I chose. I didn't watch um, Pont du Nord or some of these more demanding Blu-rays that are on my shelf. But I watched Nashville. Fire, the fucking classic. What's sh- it about? It's about America, man. It's about country music set in Nashville. It's got like 30 main characters. It's what, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like a hangout vibey thing where you're just there, like yeah. existing with these characters, but it's only got two characters or whatever. This film is kind of like that, but it's got like 30 characters and they've all got really intriguing things going on over like a two-day period. Cool. It's great. Is uh, it, what's the... Is it a comedy? Uh, it's it's the, comedic. Uh, I feel like it's wry and like sarcastic. Yeah, it's, it's a comedy. It's like a satirical comedy, but it's also very very dark and has like really deep shit happening next to like really humorous shit. It's like a it's like a Bruegel painting almost. You know? <laughs> it's just like a bunch of stuff happening in it. in the world. And then I also watched Erase the Head. Fuck me up. It's really scary. <laughs> yeah, I still haven't seen it, which is. I don't know, unacceptable, really. I feel like 
yeah, I hadn't seen it in like 10 years or whatever. I didn't feel like necessary to watch it. I probably don't need to watch it for another 10 years now because it is profoundly disturbing. But after watching, you know, the new Twin Peaks episode eight, like numerous times. God, I like But this, <laughs> that, but like more the sequence before and like the real expressionist lighting right, and like the yeah. bit that takes place on the island. That's like the style of Eraserhead. So it's cool how yep. he went straight back to like the start of his oeuvre to like reference that visually for... The true nightmare. Yeah, but like really like one of the real masterpieces of our time. I've got to watch it. And you said to me (laughs) something about Alien. (laughs) Oh yeah, it's bare like Alien. What did I say? I didn't realise it was that like body horror centric. I thought it was more just like weird visually, but... No man, it's just one thing and you just see it again and again and it doesn't stop being really disturbing and there's also other really crazy things going on but yeah david lynch makes cool films the razor head <laughs> good debut <laughs> someone said it was the greatest film ever made stanley kubrick said well i think quite a few people stanley kubrick said the razor head was the best film he'd ever seen well, doesn't really mean watch it yeah you should watch it i'm gonna watch it <laughs> well <laughs> yeah you should watch it i watched the boys on amazon we don't need to talk about that that sounds shit yeah You've been listening to Film Grays. This has been our third slash fourth episode. No, it's definitely it's the fourth. It's one. the fourth, but the first one is zero 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 in it. Oh, uh, why did we do that? Because we didn't know if we were going to keep it up in it, so it could just be like, yeah, no, it's fucking stupid. When we do our ninety nine, our hundredth episode, yeah, it will will have already surpassed it. But that's like the years after Christ, you know, like the real Y two K was in nineteen ninety nine or whatever. Yeah. Maybe it's like <laughs> okay, we need to stop. I think this we're is done. Stupid. All right. Thanks for listening. Um, new episode dropping soon. Book Phil Graves. All I've right. been Emmett. I'm Sam. Thanks for listening. Bye.